Welcome to NAM 2020. My name is Chris Lose. I am the columnist for LD at Large, as well as the designer relations for Ayrton Lighting. I am here today from, live from the show floor with Aaron Altmark, the founder of Visual Endeavors and a longtime friend of mine. We've been looking to have this conversation for quite a while. We tried a few times to have a couple different things, but today we finally were able to make it happen. We nailed down this time and we're very happy to be talking to everybody. And uh, the topic that we're going to be covering tonight is what I like to call the liars, cheats, and thieves of our industry. Uh, we're kind of a, a bunch of pirates of the, of the rock and roll field. Uh, we've always been able to get away with a lot of, a lot of things that would just don't work in other industries and other fields. We've been so, we've been left to our own devices for so long that we've kind of developed some practices that may or may not be ethical in our society. And I'm, I kind of wanted to sit down and talk with you and see where you, where you stand on some of them. Well, cool. Thanks, Chris. Um, so it's an interesting conversation. It's something that I've talked to a number of people about. Um, the, oh, thanks. I look at we're our drinks here. Oh, yeah, we Thank got some you, nice Beth. drinks. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Beth. Such Here's to Beth. Thank you for the drinks. Speaking of ethics, drinking at work. It's okay. That's one of the industry. things we get to work. In our industry, we can drink at work. We're not, we're not the mad men, per se, but we do cheers, get to drink at work. Indeed. I don't get on lifts anymore, though, so it's okay. And I'm not getting on a lift today and something, unless something goes really wrong. <laughs> um, uh, so... I think it's an interesting point of the idea of ethics of specifically right, programming um, and you in the lighting director programmer role. So uh, one of the things that came up recently, and I, this is what made me really think it, that I wanted to talk to you about it, is I'm actually starting to see people share their programming online, and I'm seeing other people who are trying to sell their programming online. and. How do you get to decide who, whose programming is worth money and whose isn't? And how can you justify buying somebody else's programming when somebody else is just giving it away for free? So I look at it this way. I have been kind of a self-taught, um, I guess, creative coder for a little bit. And I also learned from Pablo Molina at CalArts, who's looking at me, uh, very angrily. I took several classes, it's true. So I've been a part of uh, an open source community as far as code is concerned for a while. And that community is founded on sharing the principles of code and sharing code snippets and sharing methodologies. Now when you come into our industry and you're working with consoles and things like that, you have programmers but the programmers are using very different surfaces, and it's not like a traditional coding role. I still think of it as the idea of open source. You're still learning from others. Uh, generally, you're learning from people who are actively practicing you know, what they're doing out in the world. And so you're learning methods and uh, ways of using the console and ways of using classes and macros and all these things based on the best practices of people that you see out there. With that in mind, you know, there is professional training, but you're learning mostly from your peers, I would, I would say, out in, you know, out in the industry. And with that in mind, it's, it's a really thin line between when you're taking 
things from other people and learning from them, and there's appropriating other people's work and remounting it as your own. Now, as far as what merits a, a show file that's worth paying for or not, I've, I've seen the same thing you have. Um, I think it's really just people being entrepreneurial and seeing a gap in the market. You know, if you look at some of the online training classes, like ACT has an online training class that you pay for, and you learn how to program the console online. I think that's awesome. I think that the idea that now you can do something you never could do before, which was never touch the console in person, but learn how to use the software inside and out via YouTube or uh, the ACT training or the new MA3 classes and the free software, it democratizes the industry in that anyone, whether they're in their bedroom or in an office or at a console, can learn the same principles. And I think that's awesome because it really lowers the barrier to entry so anyone who wants it bad enough can get there. Is the goal to make programming more uniform, to try and get more people on the same flow, the, the same system? I wouldn't say more uniform, but there are standard principles that I think it's important for people to know. So I, I came up working, one of the reasons I know the console so well is I worked for ACT as one of the tech support uh, providers in, in North America for a number of years. And we note, and that's I think where we met, and it's like, mm -hmm. we noticed a lot of people that are self-taught. And when you're self-taught, in something that's very technological and very ambiguous at times with these software platforms, you may not know foundational principles to get yourself out of scary situations. Or you may know how to do something one way, but not the other. Um, and I think it's important that less than a uniform way of teaching people, it's important that people know the foundational principles so that they are set up with the building blocks to succeed and then learn the more advanced things on their own. Now, what I have seen, which it, it, I think is dangerous, is you have a lot of people now that look at the MA consoles or any console at this point and go, oh, I want to learn how to do lighting at a rave. And I've seen people use all of these colorful layout views where they can change all their colors on a whim just by touching it. And that's what I want to learn. And so they find those macros, they dive into that macro, but they're not learning the foundations of programming. right? They're not learning tracking or data management or preset management. They're beautiful layouts, though. They're making beautiful layouts. And they're if the stunning. audience was looking at their layouts, they would be very impressed. Exactly. But they're not learning the core principles of what it is to be a programmer. They're learning what it is to, def to design a, a pretty UX on a console that's not actually made for that. OK, so I would imagine you've spent hours on some of these 900-line macros to build your show file so that you can roll up with your one hour at a rave and here's your console for one hour, put together your 10,000 cues. I would imagine you have some very spectacular macros that can put together some BPM matching and stuff like that. What would happen if one of those ended up left on the console, and next thing you know, you go to another rave and the, the, the house guy is using a macro that you've spent weeks, months developing? Do you see that as a... Uh, is I that a, it, a show of respect, or is that just thieving? It depends on how that conversation happens and how that exchange occurs. Okay. I, I, have, I have personally walked up to 
shows and looked over someone's shoulder and seen a show file that looks a lot like mine. And it's, I think everybody's had this experience. I've heard from another several colleagues recently that like show files just end up places. They get left on desks. You know, there's a lot of people that are very religious about wiping their show files off of desks. It comes down to what, what you believe being the person that made it. If you can hand a box of crayons to someone and they can paint the same picture, maybe it means they're really good. Maybe it means your crayons are really, really sharp and really pretty and maybe the <laughs> colors are awesome. I sharpened those crayons exactly. myself. Like, but just because someone's using the same tools as you doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to achieve the same end result. Now, when we're talking about programming versus operation, you know, I can count to four really well. Some people can't. And so they might not be able to use the show file the same way. At the end of the day, it used to bother me. Now it really doesn't. Um, what changed? I think just the attitude of, of my show file I've spent a lot of time on. It makes a lot of things easier for me. Uh, and I know how to use it, and that's awesome. But it's not something that anyone can walk up, walk up to, and magic. It's not the auto magic. Make a show, make a show happen. File. I, I have kind of purposely stayed away from that. Um, not so much because I'm scared of people taking anything. Because again, I, I think it's great that people want to learn. I will happily show people how my macros work and how my show file works, and I've given it out on many occasions, especially people that ask nicely. I, I believe that comes from the open source generation where everybody's sharing anyway. Yeah. You're not going to make any money on on the the actual numbers and the ones and zeros that you put in there, but it's, you're well, going to make money on how you, you utilize you, it. You are. You get paid to do that anyway. You know that's how you make your day rate. Right. You're getting your day rate because people know that you know how to use the console better than anyone that they otherwise would have hired or anyone who was available at the time. Okay. Let's take it to the other extreme where something that is clearly unethical would be somebody finds your show file on the console. They go to the artist management and say, hey, Aaron costs X. I can do it for X minus $300 a day and I have his show file and I can do it. Clearly, that's, that's a violation. So, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Okay, that comes down to don't be a shit person. Um, and it's really just like being ethical and knowing that it's a very small industry. We did, I did a panel uh, at LDI that was how to be a good fest and guest LD and it basically came down to be a good person. Like we're in a really small industry and pissing off people that you're going to end up working with probably sooner than later or seeing it front of house of a show or even worse, people you're going to rely on to save your show when something goes wrong. It's just a terrible idea. Like in, the short, in the short term, maybe saying I can take this show file and then undercut someone else is a good idea in one person's mind and I'm sure people have done it. But those are people I don't want to work with. And it's not, I'm not necessarily going to go after people for that. I don't think it's worth the time or money. Um, and, and intellectual property, when it comes to programming, is probably pretty difficult to chase after anyway. Um, 
I would say it's really more of a moral conflict. At that point, you're you're violating your morals as the person behind the desk. In that regard, I would imagine that we are still kind of pirates in the fact that we're, we will not go to a lawyer to remedy that situation. We will find a way to make sure that they don't work again or... Yeah, it's... Someone's gonna... Like, I do... I, I do a lot of festivals and I've done a lot of festivals and I've seen people come in and out and there are times when you're gonna you're gonna have a hard day and someone's gonna turn around and you're gonna go, I don't know why my network doesn't work. I don't know why my NPUs keep dropping offline. I don't know why my floor package doesn't work. And if you turn to the person in front of house whose job it is to help you and you're running a version of their file that you got under inauthentic ways, you're not gonna get the help you need. Oh man, as so a... I, I think it's on you as less the person protecting their IP, but more as the person who should know when it's appropriate to use something and when it's not appropriate to use something. Yep. Uh, as, a, as a house guy at the joint for many years, I found myself in that exact situation where I'm, I can go above and beyond for somebody that I respect, but if I don't respect or enjoy being around that person, I can be very passive-aggressively hands-off and still feel very good about what I've done. Like, I, I set up the console, and it's there, and all the lights work, but I'm going to be in my office. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forgot to leave you my cell number when I went to my office, and now I'm not in the office. Whereas if I, if I, if I enjoy working with somebody I respect and I want to be around them, I can be, I can be there texting you <laughs> for yeah. uh, some sort of... This, special macro while they're working on something else. Yeah, it's, it really comes down to, I think, in this industry, especially behind the desk, you have to treat every single person like they're your best friend or that you want them to be your best friend. Yeah. Until which point does it give you reason not to? But you, Our reputations precede us in this industry for sure. It's, we're still a, a reputation-driven... Uh, which brings me to my, another question. What is the general path or the, the, the most ethical path from operator and director to designer. Mm. And I see this coming up all the time where a designer has handed off the show to a very capable uh, programmer, operator, and then bit by bit, small piece, the show changes and the, the artist finds that their, their LD is perfectly capable of making changes and even doing redesigns. And next thing you know, they just don't call the designer back. And where does that line switch from a perfectly acceptable progression to an unethical stealing of a job? It's a tricky one. It is tricky. I, again, I think it's on you as the person in the hot seat when you, if you have an artist come to you and ask you to replace someone that you've worked with or worked for, aka the designer, it's, it's on you to manage that in the most responsible way. And there have been times when I've had to call people and say, hey, I'm being asked to do this, but it, it, this is, seems wrong. And What's you kind of just on? hoping the for situation? a blessing? No, You're like, I actually. Uh, this is what's happening. If you give me your blessing, I will do it. 
if you don't give me your blessing, I will. I I'll generally back off. approach it from a hey, what's going on here? What are the politics? Okay. Because there's always politics. There's and maybe, always politics. Maybe it's budget. Maybe it's frequently. I think it's just that as the the operator, lighting director, role, video director, whatever it is, you're the one in front of the desk and also the face of the show every day when the artist sees something go wrong, when the artist asks a question, or when the management asks a question, you're the person in the hot seat who they talk to. You are, you're just the person they know. And the designer, depending on the show, designs the show and sends it off, makes some changes, maybe comes back in. But you're much less present, and it's there's a, you know, on the road, as everyone knows, like you start to trust the people you're around. It's a small family. And I think it's, I think it's an organic development of a relationship. I think it's just what happens. You get really close to the person that's behind the desk that you trust as an artist, as a manager, whatever it is. And then when you're trying to make decisions that involve money or your show or your, your own well-being, whatever it is, then you automatically look at the person that you trust and have a rapport with. And... Maybe it is a budget decision. Maybe it's not. Maybe you just trust that person and really like them. You know, that's... It's kind of sounding like you under, that you're on the side of if it's transparently done and everybody, if, if everybody's yeah. aware of what's happening, then you're not stabbing anybody in the back. As long as it's an open conversation, yeah. it won't be looked at as backstabbing. Okay. But it's, it's got to be... It's got to be a conversation. I think it's got to be... You, you, as the person getting approached, has to head it off the pass. You're the one that has to manage all of those relationships because ambiguity in that situation only breeds mistrust and discontent. And long term, I agree. you might accidentally agree to something that, it, like, we've, I've had this happen a fair amount from many sides of the coin where someone can agree to something that they don't actually either know how to do, that they're capable of doing, they oversell, whatever it is, and then it just turns into a mess. So like, it's your responsibility, no matter what the situation is, to know your own morals, know what's right and wrong of that situation, and also to know what you're capable of. Because you can't, you can't say yes to something that you're not able to do or able to figure out, because then you're wasting everyone's time and money. That is a perfect segue into my next question, and that comes down to resumes and how transparent we have to be about resumes. So, like, I know that your most recent projects are very impressive. You've got Tiesto and, uh, remind me, your other two most... So, um, most recently, I was out with Tiesto for several years, uh, kind of production design, operation, programming... Um, we did the Logic Tour 2017, 2018. Um, and then we also did uh, the Tame Impala Tour 2017, 2018, 2019, which was actually not lighting, that was video okay. and notch content. Okay. Still programming, but on the video side of things. How many notches? Uh, th three notches. It was three notches. So those are all three very impressive projects that are sitting at the top of your resume. Do you have to tell them, your next client, exactly how well those went? Like, let's, a lot of people in the industry have a tendency to fall uphill where they'll be able to put a big name, uh, you know, a, a Van Flankenstein on their resume, and then they'll be able to coast off that for the next three gigs. Like, oh, I, I was the LD for Justin Fluber game. Right. And uh, you don't have to tell people that maybe you 
you got fired from that gig, you don't have to put that on your resume. But the fact that it says on your resume that you had worked for them, sometimes you can you can ride that roller coaster. I would say that it's it's not that easy to lie. I agree. Most people, if you're if admittedly, like this is not. Um, I don't know that I've been hired based on a, a strict resume in a while. It's more of, it's always word of mouth. Everything we get is word of mouth at this point or recommendations or people that we love working with that are colleagues and, and people that I look up to that we like working with all the time, that that's who we work with a lot. So nowadays, I don't think it's that easy to lie. If, if you say I worked with so-and-so and the show went awesome, there's probably someone, it's a small industry, they're going to go to, the production manager is going to go to the other lighting person they know and say, hey, how was this? Like, this person says it was awesome. Was it the best tour ever? And more than likely, that person's going to say, yeah, it was. They were excellent to work with. Or oh. they're going to say, no, they're full of shit. I have a great story about that one. When I was in, the, in Las Vegas, I worked at the Hard Rock, and we had the indoor venue, which was the joint, and then we had the outdoor venue, which was the pool. And we were doing a boxing event in the joint. And the guy was telling me about how he had just finished, let's call it the Monsters of Rock tour in South America. He had no photos to back it up. He was talking about how he designed it and how he had to learn the Grand Amé for it. This was several years ago. I go outside to the pool where we have another band with another LD. And he says, he just came back as the LD from the Monsters of Rock tour, except he has photos mm. and he knows how to run the MA mm. and he backs up all of his stories. One of these things is not like the other. Somebody was lying to me because the two did not know each other. And that's just a perfect example of how small this industry is. This happened within 15 minutes of me finishing up with him and then going outside and they both claimed to be the LD for the Monsters of Rock tour and only one of them was telling the truth. And I, I did not call him out to his face, but I did tell the rest, of his clue, the rest of his crew that he was lying to my face. Yeah, I, I think there's like an underlying principle here, which uh, one Bob Boniel actually expounded on earlier, uh, which is like, be humble, right? Like, you can, you can spout whatever you want, but there's, there's, it's a very small industry where thank, I'm, I am really thankful to work with some of my closest friends and consider my colleagues and my peers, my friends. Uh, that's what I love about the industry. And I think you can only get so far if you're bullshitting people, someone will figure it out or you'll fail spectacularly sometimes. Yeah. And people will figure, people will go, Oh, maybe this isn't such a good idea. One of the pieces of product that has been making that abundantly clear recently is D3. There's a uh, disguise. Oh. There's a lot of people oh. out there with a lot of media servers that they can fake it. Like you can have done an inbox and you can move over to our chaos and you can kind of know how to upload files and you can kind of get through it. And you're like, well, it's a media server and you can lie to a certain degree. Like, okay, look, I, I've read the manual for our chaos. I've read the, the manual for Mbox, so I can, I can probably get through it. But I've seen people try and lie about D3, and it bites them in the butt hard. Yeah, I, I think that goes to say with like a lot of technology. Now, you've got, you've got media servers that are controlled by consoles. 
so here's here's the thing now is like ten years ago we weren't we weren't controlling so many universes of DMX. We weren't controlling all these multi-instance fixtures all the time. We were controlling video walls and media servers and notches. How many notches? All of the notches. Like, there's so many things now tied to consoles and tied to networking. I think there's just a lot you have to know to really be able to tie things together. Like a lot of what I do now more so than strictly programming and designing is integration and tying things together. And it's it's been a really interesting experience seeing just how many people, they know one thing, they know programming, they know servers, like you can have server operators, you can have programmers, but when it comes time to put things together, make them talk, streaming ACN going here, Artnet going back there, DMX going this way, everything network, doing a network design, I think it's, it's really crucial that you know all of these pieces now, or at least a little bit, like being a generalist is okay. You don't have to be a specialist, but you can't be a generalist and claim to be a specialist. <clears throat> That's a great way to put it. You can't. It's it, because you're gonna you're gonna run into a problem you don't know how to solve. And granted, like this is less of a problem because you're only as strong as your Rolodex. So, you know, I, I know the people to call if I have a problem with a D3 that I don't know how to solve. Uh, you know, the, the, you have to have the people that can solve things for you. If you're in a high stress situation, though. And if you've told them that you know something and then you end up trying to phone a friend your way through it, you're just going to create more frustration. That's a, that's a tough one. You got to be very upfront. You're like, hey, I've done, let's say, let's use Grand MA. Hey, I've punted hundreds of shows. And if I show up, I'm like, yes, I know Grand MA. Like, okay, we're going to time code this one. And if you have to be the first one to say, I don't know how to do that, it. It, it, it can be, it depends on the timing. It's, it, it's a clear expectations. It's your job is to manage expectations. I, I make a joke of like greatly managed expectations should be the company name. But if you don't know how to do something, like I've always been the kid who goes to read the manual because I don't know how to do it. And so I learn it. And that's like, that's how I learned consoles. It's how I learned a lot of things. Um, I think it's okay to say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to time code, but I know how to learn it, and I can learn it in the next three days, and I will master it by the time you need me to program something in a week. Or I'm going to bring in the person that knows how to do that to help me do it. It depends on the level of artist, the level of show. Like, it's yeah. knowing, knowing how to back yourself up. I don't think in that case that would be called a lie. I would say that, you know, you were very upfront. You do know how to patch. You do know how to build presets. You do know how to right. build a fax engine. But you just haven't time-coded. So you can yeah. easily say, give me a little bit of time. Well, and I think in a programming sense, like, a lot of people will say that. You'll say, look, I'm really good at punting shows. Or I'm really good at programming queued shows, you know, maybe I came from theater, and so I know queue stack shows and tracking really well. Hey, I've never done time code, and I know that you're an artist that has used uh, recorded backing tracks. Like, I would love to start time coding some stuff for you, because I haven't done a lot of it, and I'd love to do it. You know? Yeah, I agree. As long as you're upfront about it and manage that expectation, you're not being dishonest, right? You're not misrepresenting what your skills are, which is a lot of what we're kind of circling around here is like you if you don't misrepresent what your skill sets are or you don't misappropriate then you're being very you're being honest and forthright and doing your due diligence of being the best professional you can be yeah 
Uh, one of the things that you've benefited from was your time at ACT, where you got to meet everybody in the industry because they were all calling you at at many the, the worst days of their lives. They were calling me. Yeah, yeah, the worst and moments. So because you were there to bail them out. <laughs> Yeah. You be, your name became you know synonymous say, with uh, problem solver. You know how they say relationships in crisis never end? Yeah. No. <laughs> never come pan out. <laughs> and so eventually you were able to capitalize on that, that you were, that your name was synonymous with problem solving with the Grand MA2. Yeah, I've, I've been able to capitalize on knowing a lot about the console and being able to talk to people in a crisis situation and stay calm because you know we do a lot of these big shows and if you're sitting at main stage of Co you know I've, I've had this happen like we had this happen last year like we had servers go down at Coachella main stage and there was nothing we could do you know we could, we we did we were doing everything we could and I was in that situation where I had the tr catastrophic equipment failure and it was one of those moments where I was like the only thing you can do is stay calm and go through the steps of what you know to be the best troubleshooting and get the show up. And I think a lot of people come to find support staff synonymous with that, right? Of they're, they're the people that get you out of the hairy situations that you don't know how to get yourself out of. And that's a very specific relationship, right? It's, it's you have to trust the person on the other line isn't going to bullshit you and isn't going to minimize your problem or call you an idiot. Which is another, like, if you establish a relationship with people where you are listening to their problems and then trying the hardest you can to solve them, you know, being nice to people goes a long way. And, you know, I, I went from that to being behind the desk in the other fashion of actually programming. And it was the same thing. I, I you know, be nice to people and listen and treat Humility them. goes a long way, for sure. Be humble, right? Yeah. It's, it does go a really long way. And you know, if you look at like one of my dearest friends, Bobby Gray, like Bobby is the nicest person I think I've ever met. And that's every time I see him, I smile, no matter where it is. It could be the worst day. And that's one of those things where it's a small industry. You want to see those people. You want to be around those people. I would definitely call him part of the open source generation where he's Absolutely. just willing to share everything. You're like, Bobby, I am never going to use that macro. That is. That's too much, buddy. You, I don't know how much time you spend on that, but that is... Yeah, but he's, he's happy to share it. I think that's the idea, is if you're happy to share things for people to learn, you're being earnest to teach people things that they're asking, you know, out of... And it, it's not that I think it's the best macro in the world. It's just like, hey, maybe you don't need to spend that much time making these presets. This will make them for you. Hey, maybe you... Here's a clone macro that... I, I wrote a macro, I think, for Butch Allen years ago. I need to ask Butch about that. Oh, it was for Rob Koenig, maybe. I don't know. I wrote a macro when I was at ACT, call, and I think we called it like the clone macro that ate Kansas. <laughs> it was a really fun clone macro. Um, <laughs> because, and it's still in my show file, because I use it a lot. But it's one of those things where like, I give it out like candy, because it's a great macro. It saves people time. I don't think it's going to make anyone, I don't know, make more. maybe it makes people more money. I think it just makes them work less. Work less time. Thanks, Bob. Can I get 5% uh, of that? Okay. Uh, one of the interesting, one of the more interesting events that happened was a person added me online on Facebook and without any sort of introduction or small talk, they just asked me, so what's up with channel 666 effect? 
And so it took me a few moments to realize, but the backstory behind that is on Fleetwood Mac, we had to have constant communication with Navigator. So I put a, an effect that just existed in the background and I just called it uh, Fixture 666 and I just put a little effect on it that looked like a heartbeat. Nobody would have known that without having my show file. So I, when I looked at him online, he was from Minnesota. And the only uh, tie to him would have been that my designer also worked in Minnesota. And I realized that one of my consoles had gone back to Minnesota and he had looked at my show file and he had questions. And at first, my ego was like, oh, what are you doing looking through my show file? But then after I sat on it for a day before I responded, and then I realized that after I put my ego aside, that it was kind of a, uh, a sign of respect that he had yeah. rooted through my show file and found something yeah. very small and very intricate and had questions. Yeah. And now that him and I have a relationship, it's the other way around. He's the one that I call going, okay, how do I make my images move in yeah. the, in the so command he, line? He asked in the right, he asked in a, a, a different way, but like, you know, he's, he's interested. He's asking you for the knowledge and it's, it's not, it's not stealing. I it's think. not stealing. You're right. It, it's, this is the hard part where it's like people are just trying, I think at the root of it, everything we're talking about, people are just trying to learn. And there's no, has not been a clear path for education on the consoles without going in person for a training class, specifically when we're talking about like Grand MA. But now there's the online class, which is awesome. There's YouTube, which is awesome. Yeah. I, I actually think it's really great that everyone is doing all these YouTube tutorials. I do. Again, democratizing the educational process of learning a console, is fantastic. Um, I don't think we should be punishing people for trying to learn. I, I, I think it's great. So in, uh, this might be just a few years before you, but reverse engineering used to be a big problem in our industry where somebody would rent a Verilite, yeah. dissect it, reverse engineer it, and then... I've used my share of fake MAs, it's still a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's still happening. But for some reason with programming, the same ethic, the same ethical principles don't necessarily apply because we didn't, I don't, I can't figure out why the same principles don't, don't apply because it is reverse engineering. It because is. I, I, I think it comes down to what the product is. Okay. If a console manufacturer goes out and makes a console or a moving light manufacturer makes a moving light, and a company goes and takes it apart and clones it and then goes and makes millions of dollars selling it, that's mass re redistribution of a product, right? If someone grabs your show file because they want to know how you're so good at programming and then they make it their own, I don't think that they're going to mass reproduce your show file. They're only going to touch, let's say, 12... 15 festivals a year. Maybe they're going to put it out on their, some DJ rig. Like, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but I think it's a scale question, and it's also 
that's how I think that's how people learn. Like I, I think it's the obfuscated path of like how you learn from show files. It just needs to be a conversation between two people. Hey, I really like what you're doing. How do you do it? Could you teach me? Okay. Instead of sticking a flash drive in a console and going boop boop, and then walking away and trying to re-engineer it, that's just and it's probably people being shy. At a certain point, it's intimidation, and you know we should make it less scary. Right on. So we're down to about our last five minutes. I want to get to something that I I can't fully nail down exactly the, the defining line here. But if you have, let's say you've you've been in rehearsal for two weeks. You put together a show, you're almost done, and you haven't received payment. How far can you ethically go to punish your non-payer? I think it's a conversation for whoever wrote your deal memo. And if your deal memo doesn't clearly stipulate when you need payment and what the ramifications are, you need to write a better one. Okay. Let's say there's no deal memo in place. You should always have a deal memo. That is a great... If nothing gets taken away from this conversation, it is that you should have a deal memo. I think that question is answered. You should always have a deal memo. And and then your questions are answered because then you, as the person behind the desk, aren't, you know, the sledgehammer coming down. Like, the worst possible situation you can get yourself into is saying, I'm going to delete the show file because you haven't paid me. And because the terms are ambiguous at, at, at best. I think just solve it with a deal memo and do your paperwork. Okay. So grabbing the show file and walking away for non-payment, that's ethical. Pulling depends a dumb fist. It depends on what your deal memo says. Pulling like a macro 666 that deletes the show file, that corrupts everything, deletes all I the... I have no comment. Okay. I, uh, I will go on record to say I think that what, what happened there was unethical. And I think that... You can... As someone who had to answer the support calls, I think it was a bad situation. Okay. Uh, I, I feel like... But this is why you should write your deal memos. Okay. Honestly, that's... No, just go pay a lawyer. You're going to do it once. You're going to get a really bomb-proof contract out of it. And then you just send it to everyone, whenever the, whoever the manager is. And that's your terms. And then you don't, have to, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to argue it in person, any of that. Deal memos save lives. Or right. really just mostly time. So anybody out there who's listening to this podcast right now who does not have a deal memo, you should get one. And it should yeah. say, in case of non-payment, I get to walk away with the show file. Or just get paid, bef- you know, get paid before you get there. It's, you know, get something up front that guarantees that you're not... You, you shouldn't have to be in the situation where you think you're going to have to walk away with the show file. You shouldn't. Okay. I, there's no reason for it to get there. Like, we're all professionals. There's a lot of people that look over paperwork. You know, the, all the management has a bunch of people doing paperwork and billing and all that kind of stuff. Legal, like, all you have to do is do a little bit of legwork up front. Solves awkward conversations. No, this has been very enlightening. I, uh, I hope if anybody's listening to you, you've heard some very wise words from, from some people who have been there. And we've seen, we've seen some shit. And we know we have some pretty good solutions to some... Uh, some common problems. And uh, I hope that this helps anybody listening right now become a a slightly more ethical programmer. I I think we can summarize this by just like, be humble and don't be a shit person. Absolutely. I can't say it any better. So thank you so much, Aaron. 
This has been a pleasure. I really enjoy our time together. And uh, we've been here broadcasting live from the show floor at NAM 2020. It's been brought to you by PLSN and TimelessJobs.com. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you very much.